what is the role of the motivation a founder or founder team had when they started uh, their product. And I always find it fascinating to learn origin stories of products, of companies, where they came from, what were the ideas when someone started it out. Because often you can really find these motivations deep built in into the product even after 10, 15 years. And so it drives a lot and explains a lot. And I talked to Yali from Snowplow and we talked also about what was their motivation when they started Snowplow in the first place. And what I found really interesting is like, you can even feel their frustration at the time when they started Snowplow with existing tools like Google Analytics or Adobe Analytics, which was I think still Omniture at that time, which was really built on a closed setup. So you send your data somewhere and something happens with it and you just get an aspect, an aggregation of this data back. And this was basically the reason why they started Snowplow, because they wanted to have full control over the data, how it gets collected, how it gets processed, and how it is accessible in the end. And you can feel that. You can see that still that this is the origin of Snowplow. So in, in everything they do, like how they build their managed service, how they um, prioritize features. And so the, the whole mission and the whole setup of Snowplow is still around data ownership, full transparency on data, and basically not making a secret how your data ends up um, when you start working with it. And this is super fascinating. I think this is like also like the strong core that you still see in Snowplow. And these are the things we are, we are talking about in the next uh, 40 minutes. Not about this, also like about the role of open source, about... Um, what kind of different kind of data you, you can track, especially about sensible data so that, for example, where Snowplow can play a role in, in environments where you act with very sensitive data. And you can do this because of this initial design that you have full ownership, full insight how your data is processed. And so I hope you enjoy the talk. and. Let me know how you like it. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this very first episode uh, of We Are Meeting the Analytics Stack. And I have a very special guest today. And so it was definitely my, my initial idea to, to have you, Yali, here on the podcast as the first guest, because like I'm following your, your story or the story of Snowplow for, I don't know, eight years, maybe. Or is eight years too long? So I don't know. When, when, yeah. when actually, when, when, no, when did you have uh, the first commit? For the first commit was just over 10 years ago. So we should really make more of a fuss about it. It was in February 2012. Wow. Thank you so much for inviting me onto your, your, your podcast team. I'm really thrilled to be here. Excellent to be. Uh, so, yeah, that's interesting. So I think, but then eight years makes sense because, like, I think I discovered you, I think, um, with a meetup uh, we had in Berlin uh, where, where you did one of the early meetups uh, together with uh, Chris Luvash uh, from Leroy. And I immediately fell in love. And That's I think right. the reason why I fell in love was like, I mean, 
coming from a world where where we all know um, just GA and amplitude and mix panel and all these different kinds of things. So it was quite fascinating to see an analytics or um, uh, a measurement service where you can basically use it as an open source. Because like, I think Matomo was, uh, at that time, Pivik was out there as well. But um, I mean, we all knew the limitations of that. And it was quite fascinating to really build data pipelines. And so I think what I, what really interests me, can you still remember when you had Snowplow in, let's say, your first production uh, environment? So was it something that, that you were testing on your end or was it already with uh, really like immediately with some client projects where, where you were trying to, to test this out? It, it's a great question. I remember it really, really, really vividly. And the, the world was very different 10 years ago. So we built Snowplow really for ourselves. We had no idea when we were building it that other people would be interested in, in running it. So the thing is so at the time, Alex, my co-founder, who's Snowplow CEO, and I, we were, we were consultants. We had our own little consultancy, and we were working with different companies in the UK uh, to help them do digital product development better. So to help them, and a, a big part of what we were showing them was that they could use data about how their users were engaging with their products to help inform pro their product development and their marketing strategies. And in 2012, this was like around the time we started to see like the iPhone was starting to come of age. You had like the iPhone and 3G and that combination was really powerful because you could start running some really interesting apps that really helped you um, as you went. And the web was becoming a lot more interactive. And so on the one hand, you had this, uh, this very interesting data set. Uh, like if web analytics data in the 90s was about what documents people loaded and which they clicked on, suddenly with the web and mobile getting more interactive, this was really interesting behavior. And in our consultancy, we wanted to use that behavior to understand uh, retail customers so that we could market more effectively to get uh, to them. We wanted from a product development to understand how they were engaging with different parts of different digital products so we could evolve, help our, our clients evolve the products. And so we were. We were really excited about this data. We had questions of the data that we wanted to answer, and we couldn't get those questions answered. The tools of the day, Google Analytics and Site Catalyst back then, were had UIs that forced you to use the data in very particular rigid ways that were really geared around conversion rate optimization and some digital measuring, digital marketing spend efficacy. Uh, so they were very limited. And on the other side, we were nerds and we were really excited about um, geeks. I don't know what the more polite word is. We were really excited about AWS yeah. and Elastic Map Reduce and Hangabout. We can start to collect and process massive volumes of data very easily. Now that whole big data thing is like, you know, everybody's like, yeah, I can process a billion, dollars, a billion events a day. What's the big deal? But back then we were like in this world where you had to buy really expensive servers and stick Vertica on, on it or whatever. And so the first version of Snowplow was us saying, oh, look, we can use this, this open source uh, technologies like Hadoop and AWS to collect the data ourselves. And then we're, we're not, we, there isn't Google or Adobe telling us what we can and can't do with the data. We have the data. We can do whatever we want. And so it was this incredibly like liberating thing. Collect the data for yourself ask any question you want. And that was the, 
that was the thing that excited us. And it turned out lots of other people were excited. So I remember going to Berlin for the meetup that quit, that we organized with Chris Lubash and my jaw dropped because I turned up and there were more than a hundred people there. And yeah. it was at that point they were like, Oh wow, there's lots of people who, who, who think this is an interesting approach. And that was a, a bit of an, a, an oh shit moment for me. Yeah, that's interesting. So I think then basically like this, this concept of data ownership and raw data, I guess then was basically like also like the trigger why you started everything. Very much. And before us, there'd been, there'd been a, a, a couple of famous blog posts. I can't remember the name of the blog post. So author around the clickstream data warehouse. It's the idea of, but it was, it, it was very much an uh, un unobtainable dream. People knew about it. Some people who could afford technologies like the teaser and so on were doing it, but it was just out of the reach of most people. And I think like we were just excited because we saw that, that technologies like Hadoop and AWS could put it within the reach of many, many more people. What I always asked myself was like, why did you call it Snowplow in the end? What's the origin of the brand? So if you think about, we, we were so impressed with this idea that you could throw compute, you could throw commodity machines at processing data. And just by throwing lots of machines at it, you could process lots of data. That Snowplow was a metaphor for that. It was this idea of just throwing like horsepower at moving, so that, like snow or moving data up a mountain or out of the road or whatever it was. So it just felt like an apt an apt analogy back then for this. Like the first version of Snowplow was very crude. Uh, and it, it felt like this like just really raw, effective, but not pretty machine in a, uh, like a, like a snowplow. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. And, and you had it as a logo, at least this is, I can remember it was, uh, yes, uh, very recognizable <laughs> to have the snowplow. Yeah. We had a great, we had a great graphic designer who, who, who came up with that and we wanted, yeah, yeah I remember that, I remember that well. What, what's quite interesting is like you started as an open source project and, um, and so I think that's the same. So you, you mentioned like, um, the, the thing with, with compute and with storage and uh, setups that we have today. I mean, people today would think, yeah, of course they started as open source because it's natural because like a lot of, um, let's say data products do this at the moment, but at that time that was totally rare. So I, I cannot really, I think maybe Elasticsearch was also like open source as far as I can remember, but I don't not totally know it. But you were really early. But so, what was the motivation to do it? It comes back to the the the, the thing I described. This experience of uh, feeling like we we really identified with our customers and our customers wanting to do stuff with their data, and it seemed crazy to us that our customers were in a situation where they had to rely on a third party to collect their data and own their data and control their data, and then they had to ask permission of that third party to use the data in the way they wanted. So I think at the time, you if you wanted to get your uh, hits level data out of uh, Site Catalyst or out of Adobe, you had to pay again, you had to pay extra, so you had to pay for it, you had to pay for the product twice. And that just seemed so grossly unfair. It felt like the data should belong to the company that generates it and the, 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 the company should be free to use the, the, the data as they want. We've, this is all sort of pre, 
pre-GDPR and pre like the the, the, the approach to data has changed yeah. dramatically. But back then, you could legally do once you collected some data, pretty much whatever you wanted with it. It was a, a, a totally different world to the one we live in today. And so the idea with Snowplow Open Source, uh, there were a couple of ideas. The first was that we were solving a problem of getting the vendor out of the way, and we didn't want to be another vendor doing what every other vendor had done. We wanted to give company, we want to empower companies to take control and ownership of, of the data for themselves. And that's something that we still do. And we, we still try to do with our, with our paid product that isn't open source, but it was, it was, it was very much at the, at the heart at the beginning. And the other, the other thing that we wanted was we felt like the scope for building on this and extending this was huge. And we were just two guys in a room. And so if we open sourced it, like could a community coalesce around it and help us realize that vision? And, and, and that was kind of exciting to us as well. And I guess this is a second thing that you did already early as well. So like you, you mentioned the community. So um, what I see is like, I mean, what open source is one thing in, in data, but the community then in the end is like what, what really brings it to this really great level and so on. So And, and you did this early meetup, so this is this is how, how I came across. So was this intentionally or was it just like, okay, discovering by accident? Okay, it's great to have so many people just uh, just have them talk to each other and talk to them. So it was a surprise how many people came. I've, I've, I've said that already. That, that really is true. And I don't know if you remember, but I, I said at the beginning of the, the, the thing because I, uh, yeah. I was a bit surprised. I was like, how many of you have heard of Snowplow? And everybody looked at me like I was crazy. Like, this is no plan meetup. Like we're 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 not here for the free the, the the free food. We're here we're here for the we're here to learn more. We did the meetups deliberately because we felt like the potential for what could be done with this data was much greater than what most companies were doing. And we wanted to create a forum where people who were using the data in these really innovative ways could come together and share and share best practice. And that was very much what the early meetups were all about. They were all about how people had deployed the technology. And I'm trying to remember who, who talked at that first meetup. It was how they um, de de deployed it to just watch as an example and, and, and used it there. So there were some really interesting use cases and, 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 and that was really fascinating. We wanted to socialize that and get that out there so many more people could, could start using the data in clever ways. And and now it becomes really big. I mean, you do um, office hours regularly, which which I really enjoy, and um, I usually watch the recordings uh, then afterwards and so on. What are other things um, you, you you plan and do to bring the same spirit together, even like ten years after or eight years after? We we haven't done the meetups for uh, a long time because of COVID, but yeah. we're bringing them back hopefully now in the geographies that we can do. I, 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 the world has changed a lot in the, those 10 years or those eight years, but um, actually the, there's, still, there's still people who are using uh, the data in, in very interesting and innovative ways that are well beyond what most companies are doing. And I think the meetups are a great opportunity to, in exactly the same way as people were doing back then, and socialize and share share those techniques. So I think back then, most companies that were using Snowplow were using 
early versions of our technology that were batch processing and most of the use cases of the data were reporting and analytics. And today, I think the really interesting use cases are machine learning, artificial intelligence, they're nearly all all real time. And so that's one interesting direction of travel. And the other direction of travel is we see the scope of behavioral data growing all the time. So people using Snowplow, not just to track how customers are engaging on websites and mobile apps, but increasingly to track how uh, employees and team members are engaging in different tasks to help facilitate them do those better or using the technology to understand how technology is behaving. So instrumenting tracking on things like data pipelines, infrastructure, and understanding how those systems evolve and, and deal with stresses and so on that like transport and logistics use cases, the number of use cases just keeps growing. I mean, you had this segment later, but I think this is this is a good opportunity to maybe uh, even go a little bit deeper there. Um, so like, I think you still, still call it uh, tracking behavioral data, but as you already said, so like, I think uh, coming from, let's say, how people use, use website, use apps. So now we, we, we come into a totally a different scenario where we have all these systems uh, and, and in the end um, to to make sense of data. So how do, how do you see this maybe evolving in the next uh, four or five years? So um, you may already mention it like that there are people tracking pipelines and so on. So is this, I mean, what I always found very interesting about your approach is basically like you you say we, we are basically let's say technically event sourcing so an, an event can happen everything and so what kind of other interesting use cases you see and what what kind of role of this event sourcing you see in the future oh, i see i see lots of exciting possibilities so i think the uh, you, you you call this event sourcing i think that's one way of thinking about mm. it and an event can be Anything, like anything can be an event. But um, I find I find it helpful to talk in terms of behavioral behavioral data. So data that describes how things and those things can be people, or they can be machines, and they can be people at different points in their in their lives. So they can be people as consumers, which is often how we're treating them when they're on retailers' websites or engaging with marketing uh, content or. Uh, consuming services on, on on mobile apps, but they're also you know people as employees or team members. If you're understanding how they're engaging with productivity apps and how they're collaborating, or uh, students, you know, thinking about tracking people through education and how they're engaging with different courses and learning and becoming more qualified, uh, or people as patients. You know, if I'm a healthcare provider and I'm providing health via digital digital solutions. What are the different health conditions that I'm dealing with? How am I engaging with those those patients? How can I work with them over sustained time to raise their their health and fitness and and and, and well being and those sorts of things? So the the use cases are really enormous. I think the 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 unique thing about the technology is it's about creating very very good data, like really creating that data, generating that data at source that describes that behavior in a rich way that then lets us analyze it in useful uh, useful ways. So I think two interesting examples of uh, applications for that behavioral da data, I think cybersecurity is one. So if we're locking down some 
critical parts of our infrastructure. What's the behavior of that infrastructure? What are the behavior of the people who are accessing that infrastructure that we'd want to track to understand if there is uh, a malicious actor at work trying to do something that they shouldn't be? And that's a new use case for us. We've had a lot of companies take our technology and apply it to, to fraud use cases, but we've had fewer that have, we, we haven't had any yet that I'm aware of that have, have, have gone into cyber, but it's, it's one where we're exploring some possibilities. Or another one is that patient care uh, example. Um, so thinking about how you can deliver better health outcomes. And we've got a lot of customers and open source users who are in the health space, but more on the um, uh, like the, the the health and fitness and wellness side of it than the than the GPs delivering um, uh, care directly. Uh, but that's yep. we see that as a, a as a growing as a growing area. I'd cite that as a second example. Yeah, that's really interesting because in the end, it, it opens up an, a, another topic, which I think is basically um, defining uh, our current time is basically like, how do we make sure? So on the one hand, I mean, this is always like the, the balance between you, you track something uh, where, where you basically want to do good because in the end, you want to improve your service, you want to improve your product. But on the other hand, you want to respect uh, the person who's basically creating this behavior. I know that you invested pretty early in, in, in making sure to have different ways how to identify and even if you want to identify users. So can you maybe explain a little bit how you maybe in, even in this very sensitive areas, how you, how you then handle identity and or how you can handle identity with Snowplow? That's a great question, Timo. So there's, there's a few approaches to identity. There's a, a, a spectrum almost, if, if you will. So on one end of the spectrum, you can track behavior without any identity. And in certain scenarios, and in it, that's the, the right approach. So if, if somebody's not willing to share their identity, if somebody, uh, or, or sometimes they might be willing, but you shouldn't, you don't, you're not going to use that identity in a way that's going to help the data subject. Then with Snowplay, you don't need to, to track that identity. So you can track behavior, uh, in a, in a, in a fully anonymous way. There are challenges with that. You can't tell the difference between, if you're tracking behavior in a fully anonymous way, you can't tell the difference between uh, one person pressing a button twice or two people pressing the button once because you're not, it's the identity yeah. that's the difference. It's, oh, they're two people and they're separate versus, versus one person. But for a lot of uh, use cases, that, that might be applicable. So that's one, one end of the extreme. At the other end of the extreme, you can track uh, against a known user, known user identifier, this person has this email, or this person has this login, this login credential. Uh, and then sort of on that side of things, there are device identifiers that you can map to known users, so cookie IDs, uh, potentially IP addresses, device, other sorts of device identifiers like uh, IDFEs on, on mobile and so on. Um, and so there's a whole host of uh, identifiers that you can typically associate with them. An, an individual and track in, in, in the, the place of, of that individual. And then between those IDs and not tracking any kind of identifier, we support pseudonymizing IDs. So taking something like a cookie ID and anonymizing it. And then you can see that a person pressed this button twice and it wasn't two people, but you can't tell who, who that was. 
And so the idea with Snowplows, we're providing a toolkit and each company that implements our technology, they have to have an honest conversation with their users. They're going to say to their users, hey, we want to collect their data subjects. We want to collect this data from you and we're going to use this data to, to do these things. And if the users trust them, if the company's law abiding, the users will give their data and the company will use that data in, in that way. And then the company will deploy our tech to track the, identif- the, the identifiers that they need to execute the use case they've, they, they've informed those users about. And sometimes, depending on the UK, some of the GDPR, sometimes they'll need to ask the user's consent to do that. And so they might have some users that they're tracking those identifiers and others that are fully anonymous. In other cases, they might not need to ask the user's consent because it's part of the legitimate business, but they still need to be transparent and they still need to explain to their users hey look this is the data we're collecting and this is how we're using it and we we just want to get we give organizations that control so they they control exactly what data they collect they control how it's processed and how it's how it's used and they should be representing that to those data subjects this is really like what i really like for example about your trackers so the the quiet let's say really flexible approach of to define how I want to um, identify the user. So, and that I can even switch during a lifetime or during a session one, really switch in between and, and can say, okay, um, this is something which where I want to identify. And so this is something where I don't need to identify and uh, really cool. One thing, so you're still, you're still an open source project. So I can still go there and I did it several times. And so on a weekend and say, hey, I, I set up myself a Snowplow instance, maybe on Google Cloud Platform, and it's it's totally doable. It's well documented, uh, so uh, you can you can go through. And there are also like some walkthroughs, like by Seymour Harbour, and so who spent a great time to to explaining how to do this. But on the other hand, um, you also offer because I mean, setup as we all know is one thing. It's a lot of fun, and um, and it's okay. But in the end. When you have uh, a production system, you, you have to make sure that it, it's maintained and it's running. And so um, can you explain a little bit more what you offer in this kind of area for companies who say, okay, so data is an essential asset for us. Uh, we want to have full data ownership. And so how do you approach that? So because in the end, your managed service is not like other managed service so that everything happens on your end because you do it a little bit differently. Yes, yeah, so our, our paid-for platform, uh, Snowplow BDP, got, it's got quite a unique delivery model. So if you think about the open source as really this open source data pipeline, the SDKs that you set up, and then a, a data pipeline that runs in AWS or GCP, the data is processed and lands in your data lake, data warehouse, and you can model, model that data and uh, go use it to power different AI, BI, and other, and other use cases. With the paid for offering, we are setting up and running that pipeline for you as a service. So you have the benefits of, of, of SaaS. You sort of you click a button, it all magically uh, magically appears. But the it all unlike normal public SaaS, it runs in your cloud environment. So you you tell us, you know, this is my GCP account, this is my AWS account, and we'll go and we'll set up. The infrastructure in a, a in a secure way in your own environment and manage it at arm's length, and then over the top we provide a UI and an API that in that become a convenient place to define. This is the data that I want to create. This is how it's structured to monitor 
and manage things like uh, data quality to evolve the data that changes over uh, over time to set up loading the data into new destinations and so on that can all be managed conveniently through through the the, the, the user interface but the idea is that you still as a customer you still have the complete control and ownership of your your data pipeline some customers might have multiple data pipelines they might process their US data in the US and the European data in uh, in Europe but the but there's, there's that uh, UI and API and that service level uh, on on, on, on top of that. You also have a new, let's say, again, let's say a small product. And so like, I mean, one thing that I always discovered in the past is basically like, you have to do a little bit of investment to basically try it out. And so you now have a new um, tryout product. So can you explain a little bit what you can see there? So what, what kind of possibilities do you have to get an idea how to use it? And so maybe for people to not set it up, the open source one on the weekend, but maybe to have a, a tryout. So we've got a, a hosted trial product. Um, so it doesn't run in your own cloud environment. So you don't get that visibility yeah. and control of all the the infrastructure. So you lose something there. Uh, but the flip side is you don't need keys to a, a cloud account to go and run it. You can just sign up. And so what uh, what we're doing under the hood is there's just a very small Snowplow pipeline that we're hosted. It's It's single tenanted. It's just for you. It loads into a Postgres database. It's again single tenanted. It's just for each, so each trial user has their own their own database. It's just all hosted on our our infrastructure. And then, as a trial user, you can send in data and you can see how that data looks when it when it lands in in Snowplow. And the the the, the sort of the insight here was a lot of a lot of the selling point in Snowplow is the actual data itself. Like there are a lot of today, like in 2014, when we did the first Berlin meetup, there weren't really like any solutions that I was aware of outside of Snowplow for where, for warehousing your web data or warehousing your mobile data. Today, there are a lot of those solutions, but we are, I mean, a challenge this, but I think we're the only company really focused on delivering a data set that's optimized for uh, advanced analytics use case, that's optimized for AI, that's optimized for BI. And so we put a lot of thought and work into delivering this very rich, very highly structured data set to make that easy. And uh, that's a big selling point. And so the idea with the Try Snowplow is to get people to see what the data looks like and how rich and how nice it is to work with to execute in these use cases versus taking the the Google Analytics BigQuery expert export or versus working with the data out of a segment or a rudder stack. It's, it, it's, it's night and day. It's a totally different experience. And that's a, you can write that on the web page, but the best way to demonstrate it is to give people the chance to collect that data for themselves so they can see it. And that's what we're trying to do with that trial experience. So from my experience, um, your trackers, especially like the ones that you run on the website, definitely creates the most context uh, out of the box. So without you doing, so without extending um, the schema or to, to add some custom stuff. So if you see these tables, they are massive, <laughs> really massive. And that, yeah, so that should all hopefully come across in the trial version. But what we don't do in the trial version, I should say this, is you don't get to then extend that with your own schemas. And that is a serious limitation. 
so this this brings us to 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 our last segment and so i i basically um got the inspiration for this segment in another podcast which is conversations with tyler and he has a segment in his podcast which is called overrated and underrated and i I was always hoping to do this in, in data space because there are so many topics that are interesting to see. Okay, is it just hype or is it really something interesting? The first one is uh, already like um, what, what we just talked about. So schema-based versus schema-less overrated, underrated, or let's say schema-based overrated, underrated, because there it makes sense. I'd, I'd say it's underrated. I would say that. So we, we, we've been championing a schema-first approach uh, since the start, I think that was a very niche opinion. Now it's becoming the majority. So it's hard to say it's underrated because I think the world has woken up to the the importance of schema and defining schema ahead of time. But I still think it's it's underrated. How well do you think define people's schemas? So how well is the education side on let's say on on the on the content level or on the on the semantic level to define schema? Technically, it's easy to define a schema, but uh, to, to, to create a good schema, which really makes sense, which really helps you in the end. How do you think it's like the, the level there? And that is, That's hard and we need to do much better to make that easier. So that's one of the things that is a big, a, a big area of our product, our product roadmap. Um, there's almost a uh, domain modeling experience that companies that start creating data with Snowplow should be going through and we're, we're looking at that experience and thinking how we can guide companies to do it to do it better because you're you're totally right if you get it right it pays back a hundredfold because it makes all the it makes working with the data so much easier and it means that everybody in the business understands what the data means but it's a it's a scary process for a lot of people so trying to find a way to make that something that lots of people in customer organizations can um, can participate in constructively that's something that we're, we're thinking a lot about because it's yeah the, the the level of knowledge about around it is isn't isn't as high as yeah you'd hope yeah um another one multi-touch attribution overrated underrated multi-touch attribution underrated okay because if you're not doing multi-touch attribution you're you're missing a lot but attribution overrated yeah Attri like, overall people put too much emphasis on attribution and not enough emphasis on what is the impact of this marketing in terms of driving whatever the result is that it's, it's supposed to to drive so yeah, sorry. Can I cheat? Can I say multi-touch no, attribution no, right. is underrated? I I really and like attribution this. is uh, overrated. Yeah, no, no, I like this. I think the the difference makes sense. So I, I I'm interested. <laughs> Server side tracking, overrated, underrated. Underrated. Everybody should be server side tracking. <laughs> Why? So server side tracking is is great. It's very reliable. So client side tracking is never that reliable. You're always losing. Um, chunks of data, the browser and the mobile app are like wild ecosystems that you can never fully control, execution environments that you can't fully control. There's a surprising amount of information that can be tracked server-side. And so if you've got the option to track it reliably server-side or less reliably client-side, then I think it. why not track it reliably server-side? Normally, the, the reasons are technical. There's normally 
there's like well worked out workflows for front end developers to instrument tracking, but the, the back end developers are less often asked to implement tracking. And the third reason is there are loads of things that are tracked. There, there are loads of data points that end up in the data warehouse that effectively ETL'd there uh, or ELT'd there from different SaaS solutions, but could just be tracked server side. So if you've got a, a transaction, if a transaction's happened, you could track an event when the transaction's received, server side, when the transaction is sent to payment gateway to process, when the payment gateway return to say, all of that can be, can be tracked. And that can be very valuable for understanding the effectiveness of those systems and where any latency sort of comes up and also to just track accurate transaction numbers. Uh, and the last reason to love server-side tracking is there's some events that you can't track client-side. So if you want to track a return uh, of a product, if you're a retailer, then that would typically be tracked client-side or stock levels in, in a warehouse that might be tracked server-side. So there are loads of potential for server-side that, uh, that, that, that often gets neglected. So underrated, underrated, underrated. Yeah, I totally agree. And do you think the webhooks make a huge comeback by that, what you just described? Because as far as I know, you have this feature as well that you can basically um, hook up, um, let's say, a third-party software as a service and use their webhooks and send the data directly into Snowplow. Where that works, that's really powerful. And so ingesting data from things like Zendesk or the email marketing tools in real time is really is really is is really powerful and works really well webhooks are really like they're, they're, they're pretty common in the industry which is great to see the thing that nobody really does which makes me a bit sad is none of the vendors that provide webhooks typically provide json schemas for those webhooks which i always think is a, a missed opportunity so using them with snowplow at least means first developing a schema for them um, but there are There are, yeah, good solutions for, for doing that. And there is a, a growing ecosystem of great products that are just focused on webhooks and processing webhooks and things like AWS EventBridge. So, yeah, I think more, more webhooks, not, not, not less. That's a very good point. I actually just have one Cloud Run instance running, which is just logging uh, webhooks, uh, JSON payloads. Because uh, just to test it out to figure out what the schema is. So I first send it there, then I get the schema, and then I can define it for something else. So it's that's yeah, that's the classic workflow. Yeah. It'd be nice to live in a world where that wasn't necessary. Yeah, or maybe even if you could define the JSON payload, what you want to send out with the webhook on the um, tool side. So I know one or two where you actually can really do this, and if you, this is really great because in the end you can even fit it to your existing infrastructure, just based out of the. Um, yeah, the application, how you send the data. Yeah, you're right. That's that's the most powerful approach. Yeah, there. Are, yeah, I'm aware of a couple of vendors doing that. But yeah, it'd be nice to see more of them adopting that model. Yeah, excellent. So, thank you so much. Um, I mean, especially about all the nerdy kind of topics. I could have gone for another two hours, but uh, we don't want to overuse uh, your time and the time of our listeners. So. Uh, thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. Um, giving us some insights, uh, what, what Snowplow is about, what you think about kind of industry uh, and learning about like the, I think the powerful role about data ownership, open source and like, and especially like when, when we come into this area where we make more 
serious decision on about how how we want to identify people and where we want to place our data. So not on a random server somewhere where we don't have control on it. I think these are really great insights to share. Well, thanks so much, Timo, for inviting me on. It's been an absolute pleasure talking, talking through all these topics with you. Thank you a lot. Have a good day. Bye. You too. Bye.